welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Catherine Brobeck. I'm Kemper Donovan. And this week we are returning once again to my beloved Hercule Poirot, and we have more short stories from the labors of Hercules. What are we covering this week, Kemper? We are covering the Aramanthian boar and the Augean stables. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the first story? Because we're going to do them in order. Absolutely. I will start with the publication history of the Aramanthian boar. It was first published in The Strand in the UK in February 1940 and subsequently in the US the same year in May under a different title, a pretty fabulous title, Murder Mountain. Mm, murder Mountain. <laughs> Other than the fact that that reminds me of the big four and potentially Destination Unknown, I like it. <laughs> it reminds me of an episode of Frasier that I have referenced in the past um, about murdering, where they do a like 1930s radio play and it oh. goes terribly awry. Good evening. This is Frasier Crane welcoming you to KACL's recreation of the original Mystery Theater. In all my years at the Yard, I doubt I'd ever seen a fouler night than that on which I was called out to investigate a double murder at the old inn on the moors. We've definitely clipped heavily (laughs) from that episode in past episodes, yes. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I might be a one-trick pony on my references, Kemper. It's quite a trick, so that pony deserves to be referred back to over and over again. <laughs> so, yes, then, of course, this story was collected in The Labors of Hercules in the U.S. by Dodd Mead in 1947, and subsequently the same year by Collins Crime Club in the U.K. So, um, Kemper, because I know it brings you great joy. And I hope that it brings as much joy to our listeners as it does to me. Please, will you regale us with a little bit of your uh, Greek myth story time here? I will. I am getting out my Dolaire's Book of Greek Myths as I do, hefting it onto my lap here. And I'm going to open it up for a little bit of story time. Just call me uh, Peter Falk in The Princess Bride. Oh, can I? I'm going to just do that from now on. <laughs> but I'd, I'd prefer to be Columbo in The Princess Bride. Somehow the character of Columbo gets sort of transposed into The Princess Bride. That's how I like to read that framing story in The Princess Bride. That's oh, well, I like, to think, I like to think of it as the kid from Wonder Years, too. <laughs> totally. It's Columbo reading to Kevin Arnold. So, by the way, as I'm paging toward the uh, labors of Hercules, I was listening to another podcast recently, and I heard Stephen Fry, much beloved English actor, of course, uh, has apparently come out with a new telling of the Greek myths himself. This is a recent publication. He narrates the audiobook. And they played a little bit of it in the interview, and it just sounded fantastic. So for any listeners who are fans of Stephen Fry and and the Greek myths, it's called Mythos, the Greek Myths Retold by Stephen Fry. Other than an excerpt, I haven't read or listened to them yet, but I plan on doing it. So, you know, you can... Who does not love Stephen Fry? Who does not love Stephen Fry? And Greek myths are... They're one of the few pieces of source material, so to speak, that you cannot reboot and retell and rebrand too many times. So I'd love to hear his spin on things. Yeah, very interesting. So in our telling here, even though we, I believe, we are on our fourth labor 
of Hercules in Christie's telling. In the Dolaire's telling, this is the third labor. On the slopes of Mount Erymanthus roamed a wild and dreadful boar with tusks as sharp as swords. Eurystheus sent Heracles to bring this beast back alive. With loud yells, Heracles chased the boar out of its lair and drove it ahead of him all the way to the top of the snow-capped mountain. The heavy beast sank into the snow, and it was easy for Heracles to catch and subdue it. He pushed, dragged, and rolled it all the way down to the gates of Mycenae. When Eurystheus saw the fearful boar, he dived into an urn and barely dared to peek out. So that is the labor of the Aramanthian boar. A little bit more involved in uh, Christie's version. Uh, so let's get right to it. Catherine Brobeck, can you tell us about the victim of this story? Ostensibly, it's one Monsieur Sally, who is a Parisian bookkeeper. And he's been ostensibly murdered and robbed by the notorious international criminal Marasco. Marasco. <laughs> we'll get to this once we finish all the labors of Hercules, but I believe that this is a character that features prominently in the Suchet adaptation of the full labors of Hercules, this very violent sort of a criminal. This, you know, villain from the Aramanthian boar is who made it into that mashup <laughs> of the uh, the Suchet oh. adaptation. But we will, oh dear. we will discuss that more squarely when we have read all the labors of Hercules, because they all appear in there somewhere. Right, somehow, in parts, apparently. yes. Yeah. All right, so our suspect is <laughs> Marasco, obviously, <laughs> the violent international criminal ringleader who seems not only to have killed Sally, but also run off with quite a bit of money. And as you can probably tell, this is one of Christie's stories that hinges on unmasking a killer as opposed to figuring out who the murderer is vis-a-vis -a, -vis a puzzle. So this really is a bit more of the thriller end of things where Christie is concerned. And we won't really have many clues. This is going to be a much more descriptive summary mm -hmm. of events for this story. So Catherine Brobeck, start us off in describing the world as it appears to be. So if we remember the end of the Arcadian Deer, the last one of the labors of Hercules, Poirot, uh, he had been visiting the Swiss Alps to visit a sanitarium in order to solve his case. And he is still in Switzerland. But now he doesn't have a case, so he is essentially just playing tourist. Um, he's like, I mean, while I'm here. <laughs> right, right. He's like, well, I've never been to these places before. So he's going to, you know, Chamonix and like all these sort of ski villages um, in the off season, just like a full-blown tourist. He doesn't I mean, like he went to a TB ward, so I, I guess he figured, let's see what else Switzerland has to <laughs> offer this time of year, other than the possibility of contracting consumption. Correct. Right. So he does not like the town that he is in. He's claustrophobic in it. And so, you know, to me, it seems odd that you'd have claustrophobia in a little valley village. Um, and then your decision would be to take a funicular. That seems to me an odd decision. <laughs> well, we do know that Poirot makes poor choices where his holidays are concerned. Right. Like he's always doing things to torture himself, right? Going on boats and getting mal de mer, <laughs> sunning himself on beaches and talking about how the bodies on the beach look like slabs of meat, et cetera, et cetera. So I think he's just doing more of the same here, torturing himself. Yeah. So he, he leaves this, you know, charming Swiss sort of valley enclave and he takes a funicular and he's only going to take it to the first stop up the mountain. 
But while he is on it, he receives a covert message when he's handing over his ticket. He's palmed a message from his old friend, Lumantoy, who is, you know, very high up in Swiss policing. And the note warns of a wild boar, an Hermanthian boar, Poirot wonders, because he's on this kick of the labors of Hercules. And the what a coincidence <laughs> that a boar happens to be mentioned, huh? <laughs> Just quinky dink. The Swiss and the French police have been tracking him, and it's this Marisco who's known to all the newspapers. He's, you know, an internationally wanted suspect. And basically, the note from Lumentoy asks, could Poirot please continue on to the top of the mountain and help out the police? So, reluctantly, Poirot stays on this rather claustrophobic funicular, headed down to the top of the mountain in a place called Rocher-Neige, I believe that is how it's pronounced. Sometimes these uh, French, if not Swiss, French pronunciations don't always go my way, so <laughs> feel free to let me know. We actually have had some listeners who have given us some helpful tips in the past on pronunciation, so you know who you are. Feel free to reach out if it is Rocher Neige instead of Rocher, but I, I do believe it is Rocher Neige. I'm just going to go along with your pronunciation, Kemper. So there's a real place called Rocher de Nye. Basically, it's the rocks of Nye. It's near Montreux in Switzerland. So it's clearly she's basing it on that because that place, in fact, does have something like a funicular up to it, too. Right. She's kind of doing like what she did in the Tuesday Night Club. Do you remember the story told by Raymond West's soon-to-be fiancé, soon-to-be wife, Joyce Lamprière, who then would magically turn into Joan West <laughs> in later <laughs> stories? Joyce Lamprière told a story that was set in Rattle, which was her clever little play on Mausel in Cornwall. Right. So she's doing something a little bit similar here. Yeah. So it, it's all very snowy and rocky and high up. The elevations are soaring here. We should feel suitably um, impressed by the scenery that must be surrounding Monsieur Poirot up here. Just the air and the sunlight and the snow and the rocks. It's all very sublime. Right. And, and at the top, you have basically the hotel from The Shining. <laughs> yes. You you basically have the Overlook Hotel at the top of this funicular. The most important characteristic of the Overlook Hotel in The Shining is, of course, its emptiness, mm -hmm. <laughs> its grandiosity. Yeah, but it's out of season. Yes, because it's out of season. And that is very much what we have here. Right. And you, you have the sort of frazzled manager is also one of the first people you meet at this hotel. Maybe he is trying to write a novel. Who knows? Possibly so. There, it seems very clear there's nothing good going on here. But unlike the Overlook, it's not winter because the off season in the Alps is actually that season between the summer season and the true winter season, which I think starts in like December. So we're sometime in the autumn here. To circle back a little bit on the funicular Poro eyes his travel companions. And so we have an over-enthusiastic lone American man named Schwartz who wants to talk to everyone. He introduces himself. He tries to sit next to people. It's kind of sad. Tiresome American tourist. Typical American. There is this icy, sad, beautiful woman who won't talk to anyone. She's got a lot of fur collars. 
that I mean, she like hides her face in disdainfully. I feel her. How about that, Kemper? She makes me think of Dr. Zhivago. Basically, oh, like I picture her as stepping out of Dr. Zhivago. Sounds great. There's an apparently German man. At least he's reading a German book. Distinguished looking. Then there are three kind of maybe shady looking men playing card games like they're at the track. And nobody stops at any of the other towns going up the mountain. They're all headed to the very top. Right. So at this off-season hotel, a very nervous manager greets Poirot. And in the dining room, Poirot meets Gustave, the waiter. Then Schwartz, our lonely American, who still seems lonely and like he really needs to chat with someone, he retells Poirot what Poirot has already discovered on his own, namely that the distinguished-looking German man is a famous Austrian. In reality, he is Jewish, and he actually escaped from Vienna since, again, we are in the middle of World War II here. His name is Dr. Lutz. The woman is a Madame Grandier who lost her husband in a tragic accident on the mountain several years previously. And she comes back the same time every year, uh, you know, as a sort of memorial gesture, it seems. And then no one really knows those three, uh, you know, somewhat shifty seeming men. Also at the hotel, there is a cook and her husband. And prior to the arrival of all of these guests, there had been another waiter named Robert, or, you know, Robert, I suppose I should say, who was bad at his job and abruptly left. So only one wing of this massive hotel is open since, again, we are in the off season. Right. At night, Poirot's brought coffee by Gustav, who leaves the coffee, and then he reveals himself, essentially, uh, he slams the door and he says that he's actually Inspector Drouet, and he's working for Lumentoy. Because this is part of what the note was to Poirot in the funicular, is that the police have an agent already in place at the top of the mountain, and Poirot essentially needs to make contact and help. So, you know, Gustav asks what Poirot thinks about the guests in the hotel and what are they going to do about it? And, you know, where do they think Marisco might be? And Poirot sort of mentions that perhaps Robert or Robert, we don't actually know what his identity was supposed to be, um, might actually still be hiding out in the hotel. This is something that he's asked the cook and her husband earlier. Did anybody see him actually leave? The answer is no, because he was not important enough to see off, which is a funny detail in this. Yeah, so if he's hiding on the hotel, he must be Marsco. And then the funicular breaks down and all outside communication is lost. Right. So we're in a very much closed circle. We're in the shining. (laughs) Mr. Here. I know. It's like we haven't been in this closed of a closed circle. Well, I was going to say since Murder on the Orient Express because, you know, just similar snow blockade. The snowiness is what reminded me of it. But of course, no circle more closed than the and then there were none circle. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. but yeah, it really did remind me of the train and the snow and Murder on the Orient Express. And I just have to you have to forgive me for this little tangent, Catherine, because it just it brought me down a brief but delightful rabbit hole. And that is an apt choice of words. So Poirot is just when he he goes into the main room and he's looking out at this vista. Uh, and this is all, you know, the the fun of this story is kind of this setting and them all being um, isolated here and, and, and not able to leave in this hotel. Uh, there's a lot made of it because it also doesn't really make sense. Like, why would this criminal mastermind willingly come here and cut himself off? 
right. from civilization because you would think that what he'd want to do is hide, right? Hide among the masses and in that way disappear. You know, the worst way to disappear is to go to a place that's only populated by a couple of people rattling around in one wing of a massive hotel uh, on the top of a of a Swiss mountain. So, you know, Christie does paint the scene well of, of what this mountain looks like and how grand and kind of empty and barren the hotel is. And there's just this moment that I found curious where Poirot is looking out at this vista, and she writes, the lines of a nursery rhyme ran idiotically through his mind. Up above the world so high, like a tea tray in the sky. And I bumped on that because we know Christy loves her nursery rhymes. And I was like, is that an alternate verse to Twinkle Twinkle Little Star? Like a tea tray in the sky. I mean, as we all know, it's like a diamond in the sky. Mm -hmm. So this is actually a reference to the misquoting of the Twinkle Twinkle Little Star song in Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. Because specifically what the Mad Hatter in that poem says is, Twinkle Twinkle Little Bat, how I wonder what you're at. Up above the world you fly like a tea tray in the sky. And this was one of those in-jokes in Alice's Adventures in Wonderland because the bat was the nickname of an Oxford Don who was a former teacher of Lewis Carroll's and very well known to Alice Liddell's family. And of course, Alice Liddell is the real life Alice for whom Alice's Adventures in Wonderland was written. And then just indulge me for a second, because I just think this is a fun fact that many listeners will enjoy. Mm -hmm. I never realized this, but so Lewis Carroll obviously wrote the manuscript for Alice Liddell. The original manuscript was called Alice's Adventures Underground, and she actually sold that manuscript during her life after her husband died in 1926 because she needed the money, quite frankly, and she sold it for a lot. But that is how the manuscript came to be shown at Columbia University in 1932 on the centennial of Lewis Carroll's birth, and they invited Alice Liddell to come to this centennial celebration, and she did, and she was 80 years old. She went to Columbia University, and at that celebration, she met Peter Llewellyn Davies, who is the real-life inspiration for J.M. Barry's Peter Pan. <laughs> so Alice in Wonderland met actually Peter met Pan. Peter Pan just in looking up those two lines, that is where I ended up. I just, the notion of Alice in Wonderland meeting Peter Pan at Columbia University in 1932 was too delicious a tableau not to share with you all. In any case, the next night in this abandoned and now completely isolated hotel cut off from civilization, Poirot's room door is forced open and those three shady criminal types come after our dear Monsieur Poirot in his bed. I know. And they say that they are going to carve up his face. Mm -hmm. It's really distressing. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, Schwartz, the American, comes after them with a gun. Mm -hmm. And he threatens them. And he's very bold about it. And he just gets in between them and Monsieur Poirot. And he fires the gun into the wall. And they're like, okay, yeah, I know. We brought a knife to a gunfight. <laughs> so, um, yeah, hands up, knife down. And he backs them into a closet. And I have to say, at this point in the story, you kind of assume that Schwartz must be some police officer, right? A police officer or a Pinkerton detective or something. I know what I love is that he's not. He's just an American tourist and... 
And he was he uh, was really nervous about the, you know, Europeans and all of his friends made fun of him, but he still decided to pack his gun. One cliche after another with this guy, right? Uh, American tourists are friendly. They also like their guns. So, yeah, he's packing some heat here, the friendly tourist. But in this case, we are thankful for it because he saved uh, Monsieur Poirot's hide and he informs Poirot that Dr. Lutz, the distinguished German doctor, is actually treating Gustav, the waiter, who has also been brutally assaulted and stabbed in the face. And, you know, we see Lutz uh, attending to him and poor Gustav has bandages wrapped around his face. Right. And Poirot um, informs Schwartz, who now Poirot seems to sort of have a good feeling about that. In fact, Gustave, the waiter, is supposed to be Inspector Drouet. So then they both go to try to search out Poirot's hunch that the former servant, Robert slash Robert, is hiding in another wing. And in fact, instead, they find this mangled corpse with a face beaten in who is clearly has been holed up in a room in one of the empty wings. And it's at that point that Poirot, it's not clear until later, but basically he decides to heliograph down the mountain for Lomontoy. What is a heliograph exactly? So they're above the snow line, but they're trying to communicate to Lomontoy, who's below. Now that I'm thinking about it, you know what you would probably do? You would take a giant mirror and you'd flash it so that it was essentially coming off as like a beacon on the side Mm. of the mountain. So I think that that's probably... And given that they're above the snow line, that's Mm -hmm. doable. Yeah. So I think that's probably what's going on is that you're using it essentially as a flashing beacon, like a lighthouse beacon. Right. It's not even about a ray of light, so to speak. It's actually about a point of light on the mirror. And the mirror just has to be movable so that it's so the, you can the morse, flashes are... Yeah, thinking. so you can morse yeah. code. Yeah. Okay. All right. Fair enough. But this is, this so, is my um, complete uh, lack of knowledge and just complete guess as to how a heliograph would work, but... <laughs> what we assume at the end of the world, as it appears to be, is that Mariscode must be one of those three men, right? And they, mm-hmm. you know, they killed poor Robert the waiter. They realized that Gustav was the inspector and that Poirot was helping him. And they're just lashing out and protecting themselves. And it's still completely unclear, though, why Mariscode would feel the need to come up to this hotel. But uh, well, there is some know. there's some hint that perhaps it's because of the woman. Right. Who comes there every year. So maybe they're trailing her for some reason. There's some sort of, you know, romance or intrigue or connection of some sort or something. Yeah. So we don't have that completely answered, but everything seems to be lining up here. And now it is time to bridge on over into the world as it actually is. And yeah, we really don't have many clues here. I could only come up with one, but it's a classic. And I think we're all going to appreciate and enjoy it. And it's this. When someone in a Christie short story, especially potentially even a novel, but especially a short story, uh, is depicted with their face being covered up, they did it. Yeah, they're the murderer. So Gustav, the waiter, is Mariscode because he was shown in the story at the right time with his face covered in bandages. So even though we can't necessarily figure a way through exactly how that happened, we should be very suspicious. Of that person. Right. And so Lumintoy and his men finally arrive. And Paro reveals that, in fact, he's figured out what's going on. And he immediately tells them to arrest Gustav, the wounded patient. 
Kemper's already <laughs> explained why. Um, and, you know, he's not Inspector Drouet. Inspector Drouet was, you know, Robert, who's the dead fake waiter in the other wing of the hotel, who was killed by, quote unquote, Gustave, who's really Marisco, who's come up the mountain, both to have this rendezvous with his compatriots, the three game players, but mostly because, and I mean, I just really want to savor this for a moment, Kemper. Maybe you don't know my great love of 1990s action films. <laughs> <laughs> and one of my favorites is the John Woo film starring Nicolas Cage and John Travolta called Face Off. And you know what Marisco has actually come up to this off-season creepy hotel to do, Kemper? I'd like to take his, his face off. He's going to have his face off. (laughs) He's hired Dr. Lutz, who is not necessarily a bad guy, but again, he's escaped Austria running from the Nazis and he's badly in need of money. And so he got this job that, you know, they needed an, an expert plastic surgeon. And the hotel manager has been paid off because it was the off season and Marisco his compatriots have essentially tracked him there for this money. And, you know, he's supposed to have a rendezvous with them while he's having his face completely reconstructed to look like a totally different person. Right. The idea is that if you really are going to have your face off and get a new (laughs) face, best to do so in solitude. I think that's supposed to explain away why Marisco, this criminal mastermind, he's pulling a Greta Garbo here. He just wants to be alone. And he's figured out a way to do that and not sort of reveal who he is. Actually, the fact that it's after the sanitarium story um, in the last episode, that you go there to disappear, right? You go there to the Alps to drop out of the world for a little bit. And so in that regard, it does make a certain degree of sense. Because also the key was that, you know, they had to get this Dr. Lutz, who is a surgeon who specializes in facial surgery. They had to somehow lure him into a situation by which he would go through with the surgery, even potentially recognizing the fact that he was helping out a criminal mastermind because he's not a bad person, but he's he desperate. Does sort of, he's desperate. He's in a desperate situation. So this is what Christie writes. They dared not risk a nursing home in some foreign country. No, up here where no one ever comes so early in the season, except for an odd visit where the manager is a man in need of money who can be bribed was an ideal spot because basically in a more mundane scenario, wherein there's just lots of people coming in and out and people will talk It would be pretty easy, I think, for people to realize the fact that the man recuperating from facial surgery was not up to very good things. And Mariscode is someone who is also, he's on the most wanted list in and around Europe. So he's going to be vulnerable for weeks, if not months at a time. So he needs to do so in a place that would allow him some actual rest and recuperation. So I suppose it does make sense that he would want to do so in an abandoned, out-of-the-way spot. Right. And also, the police were on to this plan, right? That's why they had Inspector Drouet there to begin with. Right. But if he had just been 
anywhere else, the plan would have been that much easier to kind of infiltrate and right. I actually like. I kind of think that the plan makes a little bit of sense. It does. No, it's true. That's why I'm kind of harping on that point because it is legitimately perplexing throughout the story. You're like, yes, it really makes no sense. Like, why is this criminal mastermind insisting on coming up here? And she does answer the question satisfactorily. And you know, this whole story requires a bit of suspension of disbelief, but it works within the confines of the story. So I want to give her her due on that. It is satisfying. Yeah. You know, it's slight and like a little baffling at various points, but I did not mind it. I didn't mind it. Here's the thing. The Labors of Hercules is an excellent, I would even say superlative collection of Christie short stories. So it's a high bar. I think this is probably my least favorite of the ones we've read thus far, but it's certainly not my least favorite Christie short story or even Poirot short story. Yeah, there are things to recommend this. Absolutely. This episode is brought to you by Best Fiends. Catherine, I'm going to go out on a limb here and guess that you are a fan of a good puzzle. You know, I just might be partial to a good puzzle or two, Kemper. As am I, which is why in addition to reading my usual buckets full of Agatha Christie puzzle mysteries, I've also found myself playing a whole bunch of Best Fiends on my phone lately. You know, I have too, and I have to say, I think I'm pretty good at it. Basically, you go through all these different levels solving little puzzles on your phone, and you're helped out by adorable critters that you collect along the way. I'm partial to Howie the Lizard. I like Temper the Mite but maybe that's just because his name is very close to Kemper. You know, I've only been playing for a few days, but I'm on level 53. What I really love is that you can spend as much or as little time on it as you want. It's extremely easy to pop in and out of. Yeah, and uh, as a Twitter addict myself, it certainly beats scrolling through the news all day. It's a nice break. And we think there's a good chance you, our puzzle-loving listeners, will enjoy it too. So engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this five-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. Well, let's move on over to our second story. We both really enjoyed this one. This one was very much in keeping, I think, with the high quality of the Labors of Hercules short stories. So this one is the Augean Stables. Catherine Robeck, could you tell us a little bit about the publication history? It was published in the Strand in the UK in March 1940. It's the next one. We've already gone over the this. rest is the same. Yeah, the rest yeah. is the yeah, same. Yeah, we don't we don't need to go through the collection. We all get it. It's part of the labors of Hercules. So now, Kemper, as you enjoy so much, you're going to tell us about the Aegean stables. Ah, uh, yes, story time, my children, is upon us once again in this episode. All right. The Augean stables. Next, to humble his strong cousin, Eurystheus ordered Heracles to clean the stables of King Augeus, who lived across the mountains to the west. King Augeus had huge herds, and his stables and barnyards had not been cleaned for years. Heaps of dung rose mm. mountain high. That, that smelled good. No man alive. No man alive could clean his stables in a year, thought Eurystheus. But Heracles, with tremendous strength, changed the course of two rivers. The waters flooded through stables and barnyards and washed them clean in less than a day. And that is the Augean stables. 
Christy gets metaphorical when it comes to this labor as well. Catherine Robeck, who is our victim in Christie's version of the Augean Stables? Our victim is Prime Minister Edward Ferrier, who is a solid person, but who is about to be out of his job because of a pending scandal. Yeah, we'll get into exactly why, but he himself seems to be an upstanding fellow who is about to take a big, big, big fall politically. As you can see, this is not a murder mystery. There is no murder happening here. But as is often the case with these non-murder tales within the labors of Hercules, it's quite delightful. So our suspect is the tabloids, right? <laughs> mainly the wonderfully titled X-Ray News. Mm -hmm. It's not a good newspaper. It is definitely a quote-unquote rag. It's a trashy tabloid, and they are about to publish a story that is going to hurt our victim. But the real question is, does the X-Ray News actually have a true story to report on for once? Monsieur Poirot is going to get to the bottom of it. So, Catherine Brobeck, tell us about the world as it appears to be. Poirot was brought into this high-level meeting by Sir George Conway, who is one of the government ministers. And to his surprise, that meeting involves the relatively young, i.e. under 50, and newish Prime Minister Edward Ferrier. And Poirot's sympathetic to him because a very well-known and beloved scientist who helped Poirot in a case once spoke very well of the now Prime Minister Tupouro. Ferrier is also the son-in-law of the beloved former PM, John Hammett. And he's married to beautiful, Danish-looking, gentle, loved by the people, Dagmar, who's Hammett's daughter. That's the situation that Poirot is walking into. And Ferrier tells Poirot that they have a tabloid problem. <laughs> just news a little going, bit. Just a teeny tiny tabloid problem here. The X-Ray News is going to report a story and they would, of course, you know, sue for libel or threaten to sue for libel and shut them up that way, except for the fact that um, maybe the story that they are going to report is true. Basically, what the X-Ray News is about to report is that the beloved former PM, Hammett, this upstanding, righteous figure, everyone just reveres him. He was actually an embezzling, hypocritical nightmare right. <laughs> behind yeah. the scenes. And he made a fortune uh, for himself in office. He was stealing from the nation's coffers. And um, yeah, they are going to expose him. And given the fact that our blameless Prime Minister Ferrier is his son-in-law, that of course is going to take him down as well. But we are told that he really had no idea he was just as much in the dark as to his father-in-law's true character as the rest of the nation until he was in too deep, essentially. And now he's just trying to do the best he can for his country. You know, he's trying to prevent his own downfall here. Right. And so they've been actively trying to root out the corruption. That's like been their sort of covert agenda since gaining office is that, okay, there was this problem. Let's make sure this can't happen again. Let's quietly sort of do government reform, but it's going to be really hard if this is discovered. They even compare it to the mess of the Augean stables. Huh? <laughs> right. Look at that. Piles of dung here. And the opposition party has authoritarian tendencies. 
they're at a fraught moment in history. So having stable government is... is yeah, and, and the opposition party, it's implied, and Poirot, without saying so, tacitly agrees that the opposition party has authoritarian tendencies. And at this particularly fraught moment in world history, they should not be the party in power in Britain. So there is this balancing act going on that's like, do you want to do a cover-up in order to preserve this sort of stable government that's looking out for British interests? Or do you want it to have a party flip? I think we should remember that this is written in 1940, right? Just like the Aramanthian Boar. So this is a time when I think people felt as though they were always on the precipice of real disaster, right? So like the notion that you would have to prop up a government, even though it meant spreading a mistruth, is not too hard to swallow, I think, given the context of where we are. No, and so they, and they've tried everything. They've tried to fix it behind the scenes. They have tried to squash the rumors. They've tried everything to do repairs in like the process, etc. They can't do anything. The tabloid is going to run this story. And so Poirot is Ferrier's Hail Mary, basically. He has right. no clue what else to do. And he is desperate. And he's begging Poirot for help. Right. So Poirot goes to the X-Ray News editor, Percy Perry, who describes Poirot himself. This is one of my favorite descriptions of Poirot in the canon. Percy Perry refers to him as that high-toned Belgian dick. (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't go well, the meeting between Poirot and Percy Perry. Oh, yeah. Poirot's immaculately dressed, by the way. That is also one of my favorite lines in it, where Percy Perry asks him if he's planning on going to Ascot afterwards. Yes, yes. Perry is obviously a weasel and a scoundrel, and Poirot offers money. I mean, he essentially says, well, what about taking a whole bunch of money so that you won't actually run this piece? What he essentially offers him is a cash and kill. That's what's on offer here. I mean, that's immediately what I thought of. The the scheme whereby people who don't want a, you know, a certain story to come out work hand in hand with a tabloid who acquire the story exclusively and then squash it. That's something that has, you know, been in the news in the last couple of years, yeah. at least here in the US rather prominently. It's a so it's unclear if Poirot is actually pulling a catch and kill or if he knows it's going to fail. Oh, I think it's crystal clear that Poirot knows it's going to fail. I think that he is offering out a catch and kill knowing that he's not going to be taken up on it. My read on it is that the purpose of Poirot going in there and offering him money is that as Poirot was was about to leave, Percy Perry, of course, went back on his supposed highfalutin right. ways and said, oh, no, no, no. He made it clear right. that he could easily be bought. Right. So I think Poirot needed that to do what he does because what he's doing is essentially ruining Percy <laughs> Perry and his business. Right. So he needed to almost ensure that... Percy Perry in the X-Ray News was as filthy and immoral of a rag as it is. And that scene proves it to Poirot so that he can say to himself, well, yes, these people are essentially blackmailers. They're not real journalists. So I have no problem now uh, doing what he's about to do, burning the whole place down. Yeah, I'm going to burn this whole place down. So 
after this, this is an interestingly shaped short story because there are a lot of like little vignettes in it. Yes. So we get that. And then we find out that a series of stories are being published in the X-Ray News, both about Hammett's embezzlement from the crown, as well as all of these stories and photographs of poor virtuous Dagmar apparently being a total harlot in France with this Argentinian Lothario. She's cheating on the PM. She's sunning herself on the beach in like Saint-Tropez. Then we get a bunch of other little snippets of both the sort of common people in a pub and also, you know, the sort of upper class all reading the same rag and all being equal parts like this has to be lies, but also maybe it's true. Yeah, Christy has three sections in a row all begin with people were talking. Right. It's very cinematic. Actually, I know the way that this story is written. I'll say this, too. You know, we mentioned this in particular with the Nemean Lion, the first story of the labors of Hercules. This is another story where I said to myself as I was reading it, how could this not have been fully adapted in the Suchet series? Because this would have made such a fantastic episode of the David Suchet Poirot series. It would have been super fun. Oh, for sure it would. This is a delightful story. It feels contemporary in a similar way to the Nemean Lion, actually. And I think those sorts of stories, the Suchet series, especially in those early seasons, did extremely well. You know, I understand why they wouldn't have just started cherry picking individual stories out of the Labors of Hercules collection at any point. Like, if you're going to do them, you have to do them all. Right. And I get why they kind of just did the, that one episode at the end. But some of these stories in particular just would have been... Such a delight to see David Suchet and Pauline Moran and Philip Traxon and Hugh Frazier doing what they do. I think they just could have had so much fun with this very gossipy and just very cinematically written story. I mean, Christie can sometimes do a lot of tell and not as much show in some of these short stories. This is a very, very showy and non-telly short story. It It was really fun to read. Yeah, and again, structurally unusual for her, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's not by any means one of the longest of these short stories, because many of these Labors of Hercules short stories are actually a bit on the long side. Um, Not in a bad way, they just, some of the more robust short stories she wrote. And this one has 11 sections in it. It's just, it's got a lot of different little vignettes, one after another. And yet it feels, it feels really fleshed out somehow. Yeah, it does. I mean, all of the characters, you know, Edward Ferrier and his wife Dagmar and Percy Perry, we don't see too much from him, but we know exactly who the former prime minister is, the kind of man he was, and just the whole world, the world of tabloids and, you know, what we would term paparazzi. Right. Is extraordinarily well rendered Mm -hmm. in a way that also was charming, given that this was written in 1940. There's a lot about the world of paparazzi that we know about in the 21st and late 20th century that feels extremely tired and in, in some cases even tragic. But this was a charming spin on that kind of a world and what you can do, especially given where Poirot goes with this and how he triumphs over the X ray news. So. The case goes to trial, but this is not a libel case brought by former Prime Minister Hammett. This is a case brought by Dagmar. 
the wife of the current prime minister, Edward Ferrier, because you see, she is bringing a libel suit in her own right against the X-Ray News because she has actually been staying with a bishop of Northumbria and his wife this entire time. So all of these breathless stories about Dagmar betting with some I know, gigolo, and trashy you know, and some, trashy beach photographs where she's leaning against some guy. Yeah, there's some Claude Luttrell. Very, cl- very Claude Luttrell. Yeah, very Claude Luttrell. Saint-Tropez or, yeah. you know, some similar locale. That is all completely fabricated because that is another woman entirely. She is actually a young Danish woman named Thelma Anderson. And she is brought in to this libel suit. And she testifies that, yeah, sure, she was the one in those pictures and that she'd been paid on the pretext that uh, there was a famous movie star who needed a stand-in. She said says that the man who paid her was English and that he specifically stated he was from the X-Ray News. And she had no idea, actually, as to what was happening. And she's very apologetic about the fact that she could have been the pawn in these outrageous lies that have been told about the prime minister's wife. And naturally, the entire country is outraged, you know, especially because prior to this scandal, Dagmar was very beloved by the public. The libel suit is successful. And and just even more importantly, because the libel suit is successful, both the scandals the X-ray news reported on now have no way. As Poirot puts it, if all the newspapers in the country publish the news of John Hammett's defalcations now, no one will believe it. It will be put down as another political plot to discredit the government. Right. And their their defense is, well, no, they didn't commission these photographs. They were brought these photographs. But the jury absolutely does not believe them. The end, right? Mm. World as it actually mm. is, Kemper. Uh-oh. I can't say that we really have any clues to bridge us on over into this, but it is a pretty delightful... I don't even want to call it a twist because I think we all pretty much know where the story is going. And yet, it's extremely satisfying, isn't it? Oh, I know. Because, you know, Edward Ferrier is so happy about this result and so mad at the X-Ray News. And he's sort of just bewildered about, like, how did Poirot, like, what work of genius was Poirot that he could track down this woman in Denmark? And Poirot is like, well, (laughs) there was not, like, a huge amount of need to track her down. Yeah. Because guess who um, actually orchestrated those photographs? Yeah, that would be Poirot himself. It would be. And he's so pleased with himself. I love this moment because this is what Christie writes about Edward Ferrier's response when he realizes that Poirot was at the, the heart of all this. Edward Ferrier took a deep breath. For a moment, Hercule Poirot came nearer to being physically assaulted than at any other time in his career. <laughs> and as we know, that's saying something. Mm-hmm. So, Because he fabricated a sex scandal about his wife. Yeah, but then we find out Two lines later, which we already knew because we had seen them interact. That was another little charming vignette in which Dagmar beckons him with a finger after he finishes his meeting, you know, his official meeting with Farrier, and they have a little tete-a-tete. So we're not told until now, but we know that she must be involved somehow. Yeah, so she was aware of all of this. She just knew that her husband would never in a million years get on board with what they were going to do. So she and Poirot essentially orchestrate this whole thing. 
right? This current government as led by Edward Ferrier will stand and the opposition will get nowhere and Britain will live to see another day and fight the Nazis and ultimately triumph. Not that Christie would have known that writing this in 1940. Right. Something about this story feels um, very contemporary. You know, it's funny. There were two extremely contemporary phrases that I wrote in the margins of the story as I was reading. The first we we already talked a bit about, which is catch and kill, like the idea of catch and kill. And then the other one I know also came to your mind as well, Catherine, which is drain the swamp. The notion of a hotbed of corruption and someone coming in, this white knight coming in and draining it and being the good guys and how ultimately fruitless that endeavor is because the point of the story is the only way you can supposedly root out corruption is with more corruption. (laughs) Well, but you know, it's impossible. But the other phrase that came to mind that's not used in the story, but which is a contemporary phrase is to wag the dog, Mm -hmm. which is what they're doing, right? Because the x-ray actually did run the story or at least started to run the story of Hammett's financial crimes. But right. Poirot rightfully recognized that finances are boring to people and sex isn't. And so he used a sex scandal to essentially wag the dog, which in like at least American political parlance means to take a different story to draw away from the real story. And it actually dovetails nicely. He made the same point in the Lernaean Hydra, which was also all about gossip. I mean, gossip was the many-headed Hydra in that story right. within this collection where you know he was making the point to his client, the doctor who came in and he said, well, if people are talking about you, who's the other woman? Because the only reason people really talk like that is if it has to do with sex. You know, people like to gossip, but people really like to gossip about sex. And he makes the same point here. So it's a consistent theme. Yeah. And I mean, I don't think he's wrong. I don't think he's wrong in 2020. No, I think that is a trait of humanity that uh, will endure until the end of time. Sex sells. (laughs) Right. Interesting story. One that's very enjoyable to read. Extremely enjoyable to read and can't recommend it enough. As we were saying, these short stories, it's its really nice, actually, because, you know, the bulk of short stories that Christy wrote, she did earlier on in her career. And most of them are delightful, too. I mean, she's often just doing something different in the short stories from what she does in her novels. And we've talked a lot about that. But I love the fact that she did decide to do these Labors of Hercules as this kind of short story project in the middle of her career because they do feel more mature. They're written by a more mature writer than a lot of those earlier short stories, and they're fantastic. It's the reason why I think this collection is one of the most loved, and I'm just really glad that we're finally covering them. Yeah, no, I I like reading them, so hopefully our listeners like reading them as well because we have some more left. We do. We do indeed. Well, that is the Aramanthian Boar and the Augean Stables. We will be turning to a novel next time. We are covering a Poirot novel. All Poirot all the time for a little <laughs> bit. That would be Hickory Dickory Dock. Another nursery rhyme, Kemper. 
another nursery rhyme title. So stay tuned for that one. And in the meantime, we would love to hear from you. Of course, you can find us on our Patreon site at www.patreon.com slash allaboutagatha, or you can email us at allaboutthedame at gmail.com. Our Facebook page is All About Agatha. Our Twitter handle is at allaboutthedame. Catherine's Twitter handle is at brobcat. Our Instagram handle is at allaboutagatha. And if you have not yet left us a rating or a review, please do so. We love hearing from you. And we will see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.